passage before us this morning is one that many of you have, have memorized. Passages, Romans 8, 28, which states this. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Once again, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. There was a theology professor who who had um, just incredible, incredibly difficult health circumstances within his family, and he he wrote a book that dealt with here's things that people said that helped and here's things that people said that did not help. And he said that, that one of the things that did not help was when people would come and say, well, all things work together for good. And, and I could understand that. I could understand someone saying that it didn't help that much to have someone say, well, all, all things work together for good. When you see your wife um, in a place where her brain was being attacked and, and it just, just brutal circumstances. And yet at the same time, I don't know that there is anything else that can help somebody. I don't think that there's anything more powerful than to know that it's not all things work together for good. It is, and we know. We know that all things work together for good for those who love him, to those who are the called. This confidence that we have in our God, this isn't pertaining to those who are unbelievers. Notice that. It's to those who love God, to those who are the called. And we will look at that in our next study in this same passage. But we can have great confidence as believers that all things work together for good. Back in 1563, there was what was put together was called the Heidelberg Catechism. And it was a catechism in which the kids, not only the kids, but the people within the church, but it would be something specifically geared towards the kids of every generation that they would memorize this particular catechism. There was one question for every week of the year, and they had to memorize that particular question. And the question for week 26 was this. What believest thou when thou sayest, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? What do you believe? What what does that mean? Believers who are here, what, what does it mean when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? What what does that mean? The answer that's given is this. That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of nothing made heaven and earth with all that is in them, who likewise upholds and governs the same by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father, on whom I rely so entirely that I have no doubt 
but he will provide me all things necessary for soul and body, and further, that he'll make whatever evils he sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out to my advantage. For he's able to do it being almighty God, and he's willing being a faithful father. What a radical thing for kids to memorize, isn't that? He's almighty. He's able to take bitter providence. He's able to take things that are incredibly difficult for us to go through. And in the valley of tears, turn those things out to our advantage. He's able to do it, being almighty God, and he's willing, being a faithful father. Well, then it gets you thinking. For week 27, what dost thou mean by the providence of God? You just, you made reference to the providence of God. We just memorized that in week 26. What does it mean by the providence of God? The answer that the kids would memorize is this. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven and earth and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. I love that. The providence of God, it, everything that comes our way does not come to us by chance. But for the believer, it comes to us by his fatherly hand. And then the next question for week 28 is, what advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence does still uphold all things. Why does that matter to us? What advantage is it to us here at Reverence Bible Church on this particular morning that God in his providence upholds with his power all things? The answer is this. That we may be patient in adversity. Thankful in prosperity. And that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from his love since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. Radical. When you start thinking of the power of Almighty God. And we know, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. This morning, we are going to look into God's word and see the power behind such a statement as that because what I pray that we would all receive this morning is just a gigantic view of who God is. We, we live in a time and in a place where God is made to look so pathetic and small. He's frustrated. He can't seem to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. He can't stop terrorists. He can't change the course. He can't do much of anything. And he's presented that way. I, I tell you this morning, he's not that way. <laughs> 
I do not believe that God is the author of sin. I want to be very clear with that. Scripture makes that very clear. But at the same time, in his sovereignty, he decrees things to happen to where that there is no sinner who is above or more more powerful than the sovereign God of the universe. God does what he wills to do, and let's look at that in his word. The ground, the foundation of us placing incredible hope in a verse like Romans 8.28 comes from other passages like Psalm 115 verse 3 where it says, But our God is in heaven, he does whatever he pleases. Our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Or Ephesians 1.11 where it tells us, In him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. These things are emphatic. They, they, he does whatever he pleases. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. In Acts 17, it tells us that that he determines and pre-appoints times and boundaries in our dwellings so that we would seek the Lord and hope that we might grope for him and find him though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. He, he determines our pre-appointed times and our boundaries of our dwellings. He determines where we will be, that we might grope for him and find him. We see in Hebrews 1, 3, that he upholds all things by the word of his power. In Psalm 55, verse 22, it says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. In Matthew 10, 29, Christ is speaking. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are, more value, you are of more value than many sparrows. There's teeth on the, a verse like, and we know that all things work together for good. To those who love him, to those who are the called. Because there's, there's not a bird that falls out of the ground apart from his will. When you, when you, when you talk about Almighty God and him upholding all things. That's radical to think about. There's not a bird that falls to the ground apart from his will. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. It's not that he's distant. It's not that he's a a watchmaker kind of God where he made it and now he's just looking to see What's going to happen? And he'll react. You make your move, he makes his move. Where he's always reacting to all the different things. No, he's not that way. Every hair that's on your head is numbered. He's acquainted with all of your ways. Christ says in in Matthew 6, 26, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 
Which of you by Warren can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He's in control. He can work all things. And he does work all things together for good to those who are his people. In Romans 4.20, it says, He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to perform. He's fully convinced that what God promised, he's able to do. There's nothing that's too hard for him. And so there is a plan. And we serve a God who is sovereign, who is able to do it. That foundation is critical for us as believers. When times come where you're looking, you're saying, I have no idea why this would happen. I have no idea. Why this? Why now? How can this be for good? For us in those times to look and say, I don't know these things. They're far above anything that I can understand. I don't know, but I do know that the promises of God come and he tells me that he works all things together for good, even if I can't see it in this present life. Even if I look at it and say, I have no idea how this ever could work out towards good. God does know. The confidence of knowing that he knows all the hairs that are on your head and he doesn't let a bird fall to the ground apart from his will. That he's in control of every detail in your life. That things don't come to you by chance, but they come to you by his fatherly hand. There, there is this foundation that is so rock solid for us to stand on. To where even when we look and we say, I don't get it. I don't know. I don't know how this ever could work together for good. To be able to be in a place and say, but we know it. I don't need to be able to see it, but I know it. And I know it because I know the God of this universe. And I know how he is towards me, his son. Or towards you, his daughter. I know how he is towards us. You see things take place in the history as, as, as you look at God's revealed word where we're told like, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 15, we're told that God's people were led through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water. And he he brought, he brought water for you out of the flinty rock. He filled, fed you in the, in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know. That he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Isn't that radical? When we, we, we go into the wilderness, this terrible wilderness... There's fiery serpents, there's scorpions. You're dying of thirst and you're hungry. And God's people are told, we, we took you there. I, I led you there. I took you there. And it was for your good. I took you there so that I might humble you. That I might test you. To do you good in the end so that, that all of history is able to look and say, God's able to have water come from a rock. 
For families who are here this morning who are saying, I don't know where the finances will come for, for tomorrow. To be able to look and say, he's able to have manna come down from the heavens. It's not too hard for him. It's not for, too hard for him to have manna just come down to where you're able to eat it, but, but you only can eat just enough for that day. Don't take it for more than a day because it, it will be filled with worms and stink and all such things because God wants you to get that. You need to trust on him daily. And he shows you that in history. He shows you where he, he led them there. It wasn't where it's like, oh, man, why'd you guys go that way? I, what am I going to do? Man, maybe I can make some yummy food fall down from heaven. No, he led them there to humble them. Times in our lives where God just, he just humbles us. He brings us to a place where we say, I, I used to be able to do everything by myself. I, I like being in control. I like having things here, and I know that this is going to happen there, and I know that this is going to happen when I want it to happen, and I got everything taken care of, and God just humbles us, and he leads us to places to just humble us and show us that we need him. That we're not sufficient in and of ourselves, that we're dependent upon him. He does it for our good. But I can assure you that those that were in the wilderness were not thinking Wow, this is really turning out well. In Jeremiah 24, in verses 5 through 7, you see that the God of Israel says, Look, like these, these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I've sent out of this place for their own good, into the land of the Chaldeans. For I'll set my eyes on them for good. I'll bring them back to this land. I'll build them and not pull them down. I'll plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I'll be their God and they shall return to me with their whole heart. And so I'm going to let them be taken captive to the Chaldeans. You, you don't want to do that. You don't, none of us is be, sign me up. I'll go be a captive amongst the Chaldeans. We're talking about brutal treatment. And God says... I'm going to do that because my eyes are set on them for good. I'm going to let my people go through this because my eyes are set on them towards good. Because I work all things together for good to those who love me and who are the called. You, you hear the Apostle Paul saying, Lest I should be exalted above measure... By the abundance of the revelations. Lest I be exalted above measure. Lest I be proud. Lest I feel like I'm self-sufficient all in and of myself. There was a thorn in the flesh that was given to me. A messenger of Satan to buffet me. Lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength's made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I'll boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You, you hear the apostle just saying, I just pleaded with him. Can you make this go away? 
three times, God, please just take this away. There's this thorn in my flesh and it's killing me. And, and God just says, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul's looking at it and inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes and says, I'll take pleasure then in it. I'll take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I'm strong in him. You think of Job. God going to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? This guy's upright. Fears God. Shuns evil. And you see this debate taking place where Satan's saying, it's only because you've put this hedge about him. You've, man, you've protected him. If you take that protection away, he'll curse you. But you put this hedge about him. God says, whatever you want, do whatever you want to do. Just don't, don't touch his body. And then you look and see what happens. Sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And at that time, a messenger comes to Job and says, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And then the Sabians raided them and took them away. Indeed, they killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Your oxen... Your servants, donkeys. The Sabians came and they raided and they took them all away. And they killed your servants. I'm the only one that survived. Possessions, they're gone. Your servants have been killed. And then while he was still speaking, he's still telling the story. Someone else walks into his house, says, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And then while that guy was still speaking, there was another that came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people, and they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. It's all gone. Everything's gone. Camels, the oxen, the servants. The most brutal is... All of your children, they're, they're all gone. What, what does Job do? He stands up, he tears his robe just in, in grief over the news that he's been told one after another while they were still speaking, one after another. And we're told that He shaved his head and he fell to the ground 
and he worshiped. Everything's taken from this man. Everything's taken. Satan's there saying, he put this hedge about him. If, if you took it away, he'd curse you. Everybody's watching on. What does Job do? What happens to Job? And Job just grieves and weeps and falls to the ground and he worships. And he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God, God gave, and God took away. And you might look and say, no, the Sabians did that. The Chaldeans did that. Here's all of the circumstances, but Job knows Sabians are not more powerful than God, and Chaldeans are not more powerful than God, and a windstorm is not more powerful than God. None of that is more powerful than God. Job looked and says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'll return. The, the Lord gave me all of this, and the Lord took it all away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then there's this incredible verse right after it says, And all this Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. He didn't sin by saying, he's he's not saying this is God's fault. He's just looking and saying, God's sovereign over it all. I don't get it. I don't understand it, but God's sovereign over all of these things. And you look and and later he gets boils all over him. and, And he comes to this place where his wife's saying, curse God and die. And he says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. When you look at it, it's just radical. A view of God that looks at his circumstances, which we would look at and say, man, God took everything from this guy. And he just looks and says, I will weep and I will weep and I will tear my clothes and I'll shave my head but I'm going to fall to the ground and worship because who do I have in heaven but him he's sovereign and he's good he can make light and he can create darkness and he makes the earth he speaks these things into existence he gives the breath of life and and he can cause manna to fall down from heaven he can cause water to come from a rock he can make an axe head float he can divide the red sea He can shut a lion's mouth. He can do whatever he desires to do. And if he desires to take these things away, I'm just going to trust him and I'm going to worship him because I trust him. He's good and he's all powerful. And I'm not going to sin with my lips. And then you look on and later on he starts questioning God. I mean, as far as doubting he's got comforters that have come to him that give him miserable advice and later God comes and says were you there when I created these things tell me let me question you did were you there when I made the earth put the ring around it were you there when I did all these things and Job comes to a place of saying I know that you can do everything. He's totally humbled. Chapter 42, he comes to a place, I know you can do everything. That no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, 
who is this who hides the counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, you shall answer me. I... I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. I mean, he comes to a place after all has been taken away where he starts saying, okay, why this happen, and why that happen? And God's just saying, Job, tell me, were you there? I'm all powerful. I made everything. And Job's response is, I said stuff when I should not have said stuff. I questioned you when I should not have questioned you. I see you in the history of Scripture as being a God who is sovereign and good and almighty, who does whatever he wills to do, and there's no purpose that can be withheld from you. I've heard by the hearing of the ear. I know that God's sovereign and that God's in control and that he's almighty. I heard it. But now my eyes see you. There's been a change that's taken place. I used to be the one that would say, well, all things work together for good. Now I'm in a place where I say, and I know, I know all things work together for good. It's not something where my ears just heard it. My eyes have seen it. Firsthand, the creator of this universe works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called. He works all things together for good. It changes the way that we approach tragedy and it changes the way we approach affliction and persecution and all of these things, these ailments that we have. It should it should change the way that we think to where we start thinking like James where he says, my brother, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I'll count it a joy when these things come my way because God's molding me and conforming me into his image. And who knows, maybe there was this conversation that went on saying, have you considered my servant so-and-so? I'm just going to worship him. With all my heart, even though I don't get it, even though I don't understand it, these things are too lofty for me. I don't get it. You're the one that created the earth. You're the one that set it right up there. You're the one that painted the sky with the stars. You're the one that can make it so that everything works perfectly. There's nothing that's too hard for you. So I'm not going to be in a place where I'm going to be in that situation of cursing God and dying. I'll just come back and I'll worship and I'll trust you. And I'll look and say, it may not be on this side of eternity that I understand it, but I will trust you and I will worship you because I know the God of the Bible and I know the God of the universe and I know the one who has saved me and he's trustworthy. You hear Peter saying, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We, we trust you. Peter denies Christ three times. He's there in the courtyard. The servant girl comes to him. You also are one. We're, we're with Jesus of Galilee, but he denied it. I don't know what you're saying. All of these things happen to where he comes to a place of, of, of beginning to curse and swear, saying, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crows. And 
Peter remembered the word that Jesus had said to him, saying, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. So he went out and he wept bitterly. And then you see Jesus coming where, where he comes to the women. He goes and he tells them, go tell the disciples and Peter. Tell Peter too. I, I don't know this for sure, but I'm, I'm almost positive. I think I could say it with somewhat authority that the women come back and say, we saw him. He said, go and tell the disciples and Peter. And I could, if Peter didn't say it, he thought it. Wait, 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 wait. Did he, tell me exactly what he said. Did he say, go tell the disciples and Peter? Yeah. He said, go tell the disciples and Peter. You look at it where Peter, Peter runs to the tomb. Goes straight in. Later, he's on the boat and he sees the resurrected Christ on the shore and puts his shirt on and he jumps in to the water to swim because he knows that these guys are not going to row fast enough. So, what happens to Peter after that? Is everything just sweet and lovely and perfect? No, he, he gets imprisoned by Herod for preaching the gospel. Later, he's put to death and we're told that when they went to crucify him, he asked to be crucified upside down so that, they would not, so that he would not die in the same manner as his Lord. He's crucified upside down for his faith. And what does that do? We look at that, we, and we got to look at that through the lenses of, and God works all things together for good. You're there and you've been crucified upside down, looking at it to where it's a display to the, to the entire universe that Peter knew that Christ rose again from the dead. Just as you see these guys go to Ukraine or go to China or go to India or go to Africa and so many of the disciples killed for their faith. Was God not in control when they went to these places and they were killed for their faith? No, he was absolutely in control. And yet what it does is it screams out to us this morning that God is sovereign and that he appeared to them and they knew that he appeared. They knew that the gospel was true and they were willing to leave their family, their home, everything, Go to India, go to Russia, go to Spain, go to Africa, wherever it was. They went everywhere and died for their faith because they knew that he rose again from the dead in power. And they knew that they would rise again with him. And they were told to go to the uttermost parts of the world and to preach the gospel. And they knew it and they believed and they were willing to die for it. And it's a, a testimony to all of us that he truly rose again from the dead. Even though those guys died brutal deaths. We know, and we know that all things work together for good. We know it. I think of Adoniram Judson, pastor's kid, born in 1788, grew up in the church congregationalist, grew up in the church there, I believe Boston, went to Brown University, graduated valedictorian top of his class. While he was there at Brown University, he met a man named Jacob Ames. This guy was a 
a deist, a, a skeptic. And, and this, this guy just attacked Christianity. Everything that, that Adonai Judson believed in, this, this guy just attacked it all. And so Judson denied his faith. started studying the French philosophers. He opened a school and totally fell away from Christ. Everything that he had been raised with, everything that he had been taught. He was traveling and went to a hotel. He's staying there in this hotel and he hears next door Somebody dying. And without any doubt, this guy's dying. There's people caring for him, but he is just in misery. And he is fearful, anxious, with no hope at all in this world. And he's just listening to the wailing of this man that's next door to him. He's trying to sleep, but he can't sleep because of the, the wailing, this This man who is dying and is just in agony and has no hope. The next morning he wakes up and he goes to hear if the neighbor's health turned out okay. What happened to the person in the room next to him? The clerk said, Mr. Ames has indeed died. He had no idea that his friend was in the room next door to him. Mr. Ames has indeed died. He goes in and looks. Who is it? His friend. The guy that told him Christianity wasn't true. The guy that caused him to go and to look at, off, look at all the French philosophers and all these things and to deny, to deny Christ. And he, all he could think of is, this guy who took me from what I knew and what I believed, he had no hope when it came his time to die. And it was at that point that he said, I'm following Christ, and he was converted. I mean, God used brutal circumstances in Mr. Ames' life to work all things together for good for Mr. Judson. It changed his life radically. Went to seminary. And decides that he wants to go into the mission field. He wants to go to India. Meets a young lady. Anne and says, he wants to marry her, goes to her father, writes her father a letter asking for his daughter's marriage, hand in marriage. And he says this in the letter, I, I have now to ask whether you consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to see her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the, for the sake of perishing immortal souls for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means for 
eternal woe and despair. Can you consent to that? Can I marry your daughter? Well, he says yes. Sure, after much prayer. They go to India and it ends up that they're forced out of India. They end up going to Burma. On July 13th, 1813, they moved to Burma en route. Anne has a miscarriage of their first child. They go there. Judson already knew Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, but he begins to study Burmese. Took three years to learn to speak it, him and his wife. Two to 12 hours a day. They have a second child. Roger William Judson, and he dies at eight months old. You look, and he's there for 12 years, and in the 12-year period, there's eight converts in Burma. Learns the language, 12 years, I'm sorry, 18 converts. He begins translating the Bible into Burmese, writes a grammar for it, Starts translating the Bible into Burmese. There's a war between the United Kingdom and Burma, and what happens as a result is he gets taken away as a prisoner. He's held for almost two years in a prison camp where we're told that it's a vermin-ridden death prison. All of those that were Westerners got put in there, the men that were put in there, and by the time it was over, there was three of them that were still alive. His, watch, his wife watched him be dragged away. During those days in prison, he almost starved to death. He was fettered with irons. They would hang him by his feet to where his head and shoulders were the only, ones that t- only thing that touched the ground. And he was there for almost two years. He, he gets out. And in 1826, right after getting out, Anne, who was there trying to care for him and trying to be an advocate to get him out of prison, she dies. She leaves him a child that he didn't know even existed. And the the child dies six months later. You, You look at this man's life and you just, you kind of can get to a point of like, enough already. I mean, how do you, here's this guy with just a gigantic view of who God is, and he's looking, and without a doubt, Romans 8.28 came into Adonai Judson's mind, and we know that all things work together for good. He's hanging by his feet with rats all over, starving to death, going, and we know all things work together for good. Picturing Joseph, maybe, where Joseph is there. He gets the coat. His brothers hate him. They go to kill him when he goes out to the the field to see how they're doing. They throw him in a hole. The traders come by, and, and, and they sell him into slavery. He goes into slavery, and all that takes place where he's falsely accused of adultery. He gets thrown into prison. He gets forgotten by the, the, chief, the chief butler after he gives the butler and the baker their dreams, all of this happens, he gets forgotten. 17 years go by. 
of this man's life. There in, in, in prison. Finally, he gets released. He's there. And there's starvation that has taken place in the land. So the brothers go to Egypt. Finally, there comes this point. You know the story where Joseph's brothers are before him. And Joseph reveals who he is. The brother that they had tried to murder and then sent off into slavery. And they're scared to death that he's going to kill them. And his response is, you meant this for evil. But God meant it for good. You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. The Sabians meant that for evil, but God meant it for good. The Chaldeans meant that for evil, but God meant it for good. There is evil that takes place in the world, and yet the fact is is that God can do what's called concurrence, and he can take things that were meant for evil, and he can make them for good to his people. He is almighty, and he can do it, and he does do it, and he promises us that he'll do that. And so here's Judson, and he's in prison. All these things have happened. He's finally been released. His wife dies, and he goes into just this deep depression for over a year. Goes and he buys a, a, a slave. He pays the debt slave. So they, the, the, the slave of the debt, the, the debt of the slave, easy for me to say, pays the debt of the slave, and the guy comes to know Christ. This man speaks Korean to minister amongst the Korean people. He gets saved. He was a thief, and he said that he murdered what he knew of was 30 people, but he had lost count. And yet God saves this guy, and he leaves with zeal and goes into the jungle, and he preaches the gospel. And these people who are there, the Korean people... They had this oral, these oral traditions called the traditions of their elders that there was this unchangeable, eternal, all-powerful God, creator of heaven and earth, of man, and there was a woman that was formed from a rib that was taken from the man, and they believed in the devil and its fall, and that someday a Messiah would come to its rescue, and they lived in expectation of a prophecy that would come from white foreigners that would bring them a sacred parchment roll that they would be able to read. And so he comes, this guy who's killed over 30 people, he comes to them, preaches the gospel, and the Karini tribe just gets saved in huge numbers. You see, the entire country of Burma, hearing the gospel from all directions, Judson just wanted 100 converts in a church by the time he died. There were over 100 churches and over 8,000 people who had converted by the time Judson died. Got married two more times. His second wife, he had eight kids. Five of them survived to adulthood. With the last one, he, I think he had one child. But you look at it and people might look at this and say, like, what a brutal life this guy experienced. And yet, we know that all things work together for good. The, the Christians in Burma still suffer incredible Persecution. I went to a, Burma, or a, a Karini refugee camp on, in, in Thailand, just right there on the border of Burma. And I went into this camp and met the kids. It was just like every classroom. Highly educated kids living in these camps. They're there and they would sing a song. And every song I'd say he translated for me. And it was the most Christ-exalting, theologically correct, biblical song ever. And they just, one class after another class after another class of just them. And their, their hope, all of it was in the gospel. These villages that are there, these refugee camps that are there, and they're believers. 
amongst the Korean, amongst the Chin, amongst many of the different tribes throughout Burma. And when you talk with them, you say, how would you get saved? And it's like, from Judson, came and preached the gospel to our people. I mean, you have hundreds of thousands of people who have come to know Christ as a result of Adonai Judson going to India and then being shifted to Burma and all that he went through. And these people looked and they knew by him staying there and all that he went through that he treasured Christ above all things to where God used him for the sake of the gospel. And there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who we will see in heaven someday that will be the result of God working through this particular man and in which incredible suffering was experienced, but yet God worked it together for good. My encouragement to us this morning is there is weight in a passage like this. We know, and we know, even if we don't understand it right now, we know, based on God, the sovereign, almighty, creator of the universe who upholds all things as with his hands, that there is not drought. There is not one thing that can come to us apart from his sovereign, almighty hand that is good and delights in doing good to his people. We need to view God not in a way in which he is pathetic and small. We need to have our knowledge of God based on the power and the inspiration of his inerrant word and how he describes himself. And there is nothing, brothers and sisters, there is nothing too hard for him. And there is a purpose in his providence. May we have a view of God like that that will cause there to be joy that is indescribable and that no one else can comprehend in the midst of trials because we trust in the sovereign God of the universe who can work all things and he does work all things together for good to those who love him and who are the called. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for verses like this that have such weight to them that they cause a foundation to be laid for us in which it is so firm that we can stand on regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our trials, regardless of what has been in our past and what has happened, whether there has been 30 murders or more or whatever it is, we're able to look and say, God, you are sovereign over all things. And although people do things and they mean it for evil, Lord, you are able to work it to good and you do work to good as you've decreed all things for your glory and to mold us and to conform us into your image. You do this, Lord, for your glory and for our joy and for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of your kingdom. And I pray that we as your people at Reverence Bible Church would have such a view of you that it would not even be comprehensible to the world the peace that would pass all understanding in the midst of the most incredible trials and tribulations and suffering because we know in whom we believe and we believe that you are able to do all things in accordance with your perfect will. May, may we think that way. May we worship you that way. And Lord Jesus, may our trust of you cause you to be exalted in this land. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.